0: Welcome to Mysteries Abound. A collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 169. Our first story this week comes from the Amerizan.org website. Ten modern incidents that suggest portals really might exist. And this is written by Charlotte West. Some encounters suggest that portals really do exist. These events are usually investigated by UFO researchers and organisations due to their strangeness. Even people involved with the CERN project have spoken in such tones, with hopes of soon being able to better understand other dimensions. Here are ten intriguing events, all bizarrely unique. However, the more we understand other dimensions and how humans might perceive them, the more it appears that there may have been examples of such experiences for some time. Number 10. The Harry Turner Incident from 1979. Despite having reached his final destination on a new route, long-haul truck driver Harry Turner had no recollection of the journey. He noticed a gun in his hand and empty shells scattered around the cabin of his truck indicating that he had fired all eight shots. Then the memories came flooding back. His truck had been swallowed by a bright light as he drove to Fredericksburg from Winchester, Virginia. Apparently, Turner and his truck had been carried in perpetual nothingness. As his mind scrambled, the door to his vehicle suddenly flung open and an iron-like grip took hold of his shoulder. In a complete panic, he discharged his weapon although he could not see any visible assailant. The next thing he knew, it was 3 a.m. and he sat in the warehouse parking lot of his delivery destination. The journey should have spanned 130 kilometres or 80 miles. When his truck was analysed, however, it showed that he had only driven 27 kilometres or 17 miles. Turner believed that he has entered a portal and encountered an ultra-terrestrial An interdimensional being. Supposedly this was the creature that grabbed him and at which he had fired his gun. A report was made to the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, but the incident is still unexplained. Number 9. The Melting Car, Chicago 2008. While driving home through the streets of Chicago in November 2008, a student experienced what was later theorized to be a portal to another dimension it opened and closed around her as she drove despite being the only person on the road she suddenly began to experience loud bangs that seemed to be on her vehicle it was as if someone was trying to ram her off the road at one point the blast was so hard that it did force her into the other lane The banging suddenly stopped as quickly as it had started, and the student stepped out of her car to inspect the damage. To her amazement, the windows and general shell of the car were undamaged. However, the bodywork on her doors looked as though it had been melted by intense heat blasts. There was no trace of any other vehicle anywhere on the dented parts. Something that would have been present if the car had been physically pushed. Number 8. The Mann family, Reading, England, 1978. As he drove home with his wife Gloria and their two children and his sister, John Mann prepared for a 90-minute journey that they had made many times. However, it took over two and a half hours to arrive at home, and their journey was one of the strangest they had ever taken. After driving for about 30 minutes they noticed a strange light in the sky that appeared to be getting closer to them. Eventually, John stopped the car to get out and inspect the strange light. His family screamed at him to get back inside as the light got closer. He did so, but eventually realised that he was no longer on the road. Instead, his car was in some kind of hedged tunnel that zigzagged back and forth. Without realising how they had gotten there, They were back on the motorway, approaching their hometown. Almost two hours had passed. They tried to locate the winding road the following day, but no matter how long they searched or how far they drove, they failed to do so. Had they been in some kind of portal? Number 7. The Salyut 7 Incident Orbiting Earth, 1984. When angel-like creatures were reportedly seen around the Salyut 7 space station in 1984, the whole structure was bathed and encased in a strange orange glow. Those involved claimed to have felt the light penetrate the ship and enter their inner feelings. They claimed it was a feeling of joy and calm. These creatures were seen on two separate occasions by six different cosmonauts. The episodes occurred during the mission in which Svetlana Savitskaya became the first woman to walk in space. Had the Salyut 7 entered an alternate dimension through a strange portal that exists above Earth? Were these angels from another dimension? The report only came to light after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the files were declassified. We still have no definitive answers. Number 6. NASA declares portals to the Sun exist above Earth. In July 2012, NASA announced that portals, or X-points, really do exist above the Earth, and that the agency was continuing to study how these portals work. According to plasma physicist Jack Scudder, these X-points are created where the Earth's and Sun's magnetic fields connect. However, we don't know where these portals lead. The NASA Magnetospheric Multiscale Mission, launched in 2014, will continue to study the phenomenon. Scudder also studied data collected by NASA's Polar Spacecraft, which spent considerable time in Earth's orbit. By analysing the energetic particle measurements and the dates when anomalies occurred, Scudder hopes to predict with great accuracy exactly where and when these portals will open in the future. Whether a mission to enter them ever occurs, or where these portals might lead, has yet to be determined. Number 5. The Swirling Vortex in the Sky, 2016 In summer 2016, a 45-second video showing a swirling vortex surfaced online. A strange object was seen entering this vortex before disappearing from sight. Perhaps not surprisingly, there were many comments assuring people that this was proof of a portal to another place in space and time. Given the technology needed to travel vast distances in space, Many ufologists and scientists have theorised that using portals or wormholes would solve this problem. Whether this can really be done is another matter. As shown above, the footage is very interesting. In fact, it has been viewed thousands of times on YouTube. Some sceptics have argued that the footage was actually the after-effects of a tornado. Others believe the video was simply faked. Number 4. Man walks through portal-enclosed shop, unknown location, 2016. The footage above that shows a man walking through doors of a closed shop and into some kind of flashing portal appeared online in April 2016. However, there was no indication of where it was shot or any proof of its authenticity. The man seemingly walks right through the locked doors in a strange flash, that also appears to affect the security camera. Once inside, other similar flashes can be seen before he appears to walk back through the locked doors again. While some people have nicknamed the hooded person the time-travelling ghost, others have theorised that the use of portals may have been responsible for the feat. As you might expect, most people believe that the video was simply a clever hoax. Number three, a car vanishes into a portal during a police chase, Los Angeles, 2015. Thought to have been filmed by the Los Angeles Police Department, a video showing a car disappearing into a portal surfaced in 2015. Given the speed at which events took place, one of three things seems probable. The driver had knowledge of the portal's whereabouts the portal was created by the driver of the vehicle or the portal was a completely freak occurrence. Of course, all of those theories assume that the footage is genuine. It could be a clever hoax. The footage came courtesy of the dash cam on the police vehicle. As the police officers chase the car around various streets, the pursued vehicle suddenly makes a turn down a quieter road, seemingly heading out of downtown Los Angeles. As the mystery vehicle makes one final turn, it simply vanishes right in front of the camera. The police car then comes to a halt in front of a solid wire fence that is undamaged. Although no explanation has been offered to prove that the footage is authentic, no stories have surfaced on the internet claiming to know what was behind it either. Perhaps it was something completely strange that just happened to be captured on video. Number 2. CERN Opening Portals The CERN projects carried out under the Large Hadron Collider or the LHC program have long been targeted by conspiracy theorists for a slew of unsavoury activities ranging from satanic rituals to world domination. One of the recurring accusations is that the LHC is opening portals to other dimensions. In June 2015, Dutch photographer Harry Perton snapped an image of what some believed to be the formation of one of these portals above the Dutch town of Groningen. Perton put the image online, asking people what they thought it was. According to one reply, the LHC had been shut down for maintenance and then switched back on only days before the image was taken. Coincidence? Most probably. But when it was mentioned that the LHC had been switched back on at twice the power it was first using, eyebrows were raised by some people. And number one, the lifting car, New Hampshire, 2010. While sitting in a parked car, two teenagers managed to tear themselves away from each other in time to witness a strange light in the sky. It was seemingly getting larger and coming towards them. Before they had time to react, the car lifted from the ground with the two terrified teenagers still sitting inside. The light surrounded them as if they were in a tunnel. Despite their petrified screams, which each could see on the other's face, there was no sound in the car. It appeared as if someone had jammed earplugs into their ears and blocked out the sound completely. According to the teenage boy, a voice entered his mind and told him not to be afraid. It did nothing to calm him. Eventually, the teens could feel the car falling. With a thud, they hit the ground and the light was gone. They drove to the girl's house as fast as they could. There, her parents notified the police. When MUFON inspected the location where the teenagers claimed the incident had taken place, A clear set of dents matching the dimension of the car could be seen as if it had fallen to the ground from a height. From the HistoricMysteries.com website, The Sinking of the Mary Rose. And this is written by Doug McGowan. Most people, when thinking about Henry VIII of England, think of his obesity, the number of his wives, and his being the first head of the Anglican Church. But his earlier life showed him as a warrior king, frequently in battle with England's enemies. He was also a, not always successful, military strategist who led campaigns and armies into foreign countries in hopes of expanding his realm. When he started his reign in 1509, he inherited a few military ships and a few more commercial ships that could be changed into warships in case of battle. Henry felt that this was not enough and began to build a navy of ships that could go to war with enemies, mainly the French. The first two new warships constructed specifically for battle were the Peter Pomegranate and the Mary Rose. Popular theories about the naming of the ships state that the former was named for Saint Peter and the Aragon Queen Catherine, whose badge featured a pomegranate and the latter named either after Henry VIII's sister, Mary Tudor, or named after the Virgin Mary. The Mary Rose may have been initially mentioned in a 1510 document outlining the payment for a large ship of 400 tonnes, or in a later document which states that Henry VIII paid for moving the ship to London from its construction site in Portsmouth. The new fleet was under the command of the Lord High Admiral, Sir Edward Howard. After Henry's establishment of a naval presence, there were now almost 20 warships and crews that added up to over 5,000 sailors of differing ranks. In 1512, Howard led the ships to the area of Brittany in France where they easily defeated the local military and resulted in the British soldiers capturing 12 enemy warships and pillaging of the area once the English had landed. In another skirmish in 1513, the fighting at sea began anew, with Lord Admiral Howard boarding an enemy ship, but falling overboard and quickly drowning due to the heavy armour he was wearing. But the crucial event and mysterious episode of the Mary Rose took place during the 1545 Battle of Solent, a stretch of sea near the Isle of Wight just south of England. On the night of July 18, 1545, King Henry VIII turned over the command of his navy to a seaman by the name of George Carew. Carew soon took the fleet near the Isle of Wight and encountered French ships he went into battle. The fact that the Mary Rose sunk during the battle is not disputed. The reason why, however, is the topic of debate that goes on to this day. The official website of the Mary Rose Trust states that the Mary Rose's demise may have been due to four reasons, although a combination of them could also have been the cause the Mary Rose could have doomed itself by having unskilled seamen on board that didn't correctly manoeuvre the ship during the battle with the French. Human error could have also caused the sinking by insubordination or mistaken judgment about the strength of the French fleet. Some theorists believe that the weather may have caused the ship to sink. Surviving eyewitnesses claim that a sudden strong wind may have struck the sails at just the right angle to turn the ship over. This wind could have been a contributing factor to the sinking. The ship could have had too heavy a load of cannons and sailors. Also it seems that the cannon ports were open in preparation for attack and if the ship leaned too far to one side water would have come rushing through those openings and sunk the ship. Probably the most common sense theory, but which was later disproved, is that the French weaponry sunk the ship and a perhaps overly patriotic French cavalry officer did state officially that the Mary Rose was struck by enemy fire and damage to the ship was severe enough to take the Mary Rose under. All but approximately 35 of the 400 man crew died when the ship sank. The Wreck of the Mary Rose would be discovered 426 years later, in 1971, by undersea exploration. It showed no sign of being hit by enemy fire, opposing the theory that the ship sank after being hit by French warships. The remains of the ship were brought on shore and are now the feature of a museum in Portsmouth, the city that built it. It has come full circle. And if you visit the show notes at origins.info, that's O-R-I-G-I-N-Z dot and click on the link to this article in episode 169 of the Mysteries Abound podcast, there is a fairly accurate drawing of the Mary Rose, a painting of Henry VIII, of course, and a photograph of the recovery of the Mary Rose wreck. And also from the historicmysteries.com website, The Legend of the Miraculous Loretto Chapel Staircase. And as is usual with this website, there are some great photographs and even a video to go with this article. <laughs> with a look if you're interested. Deep in the southwestern United States is Santa Fe, the city of Holy Faith. It was here that in the 1800s, seven nuns set up a school for girls, and when it was time they built a chapel. This is where the legend of the Loreto Chapel staircase began, and ever since, faithful visitors have been flocking to the church to get a peek at the subject of the Santa Fe miracle, the Chapel Stairs. History of the Loreto Chapel. During 1872, the Bishop of the Santa Fe Archdiocese was Jean-Baptiste Lamy. French by birth, he was elected as the very first bishop of the diocese and commissioned and oversaw the construction of a chapel named Our Lady of Light in 1873. A religious order called the Sisters of Loreto would maintain the chapel. Constructed in the popular Gothic Revival style, the whole chapel was designed by renowned French architect Antoine Mouly. Unfortunately, Mouly never lived to see the work completed. The structure was sound and almost finished by 1878. The only thing lacking was a means to ascend to the choir loft. The chapel was not the largest sanctuary in the world, so a standard staircase was ruled to be too large to be practical. Other churches and chapels of the same period had ladders as opposed to stairs. However, the sisters quickly dismissed this idea due to their attire. Without a way to reach the loft, the chapel would not be able to function properly. While the likely proposals, suggestions and ideas were being debated by members of the construction industry, the sisters considered this to be nothing more than a test of their faith. Legend of the Loreto Chapel Staircase The Story Sometime around 1880, the entire order began to pray to St Joseph, the patron saint of carpenters, to help with the solution for the chapel stairs. On the ninth day of prayer, a visitor arrived at their door with his mule and some tools. The first thing the man revealed to the sisters was that he was a carpenter by trade. He was invited in and discovered the dilemma left behind with the untimely passing of the original architect. The solo workman, unlike many tradesmen that had a look prior to him, said it was possible to construct a useful staircase to the loft without becoming an eyesore in the available space. The only condition he placed upon the sisters was that he would have to work in private. The sisters were only too pleased to agree to these terms if it meant getting their staircase done. While they used the chapel for their own activities – The carpenter retreated, returning only when the chapel was empty. Some of the sisters did state they saw wood soaking in tubs they provided for him. Reports made at the time do contradict one another. Some insist that construction was completed quickly, while others reported that it took longer than might have been necessary. The carpenter disappears. When the spiral staircase was finished, The sisters were delighted with how it turned out. So much so that they organised a banquet in honour of the carpenter. This was when he was discovered missing. At no time during his work did he identify himself. He never asked for, nor received payment for his labour, or even supplies. Exactly who this man was is just one of the many mysteries surrounding the Loretto Chapel Staircase. Construction Mysteries Another mystery is the construction of the Loreto staircase itself. There are no central column or support beams, and it appears that all the weight is self-supported at the base. The craftsman did not use glue or nails. He only used wooden pegs to secure the steps. Additionally, there were no railings. The legend says that some of the nuns were so afraid to descend the 22-foot drop that they would crawl down on their hands and knees. There are only 33 steps, however. The staircase wraps around 360 degrees, twice. The number 33 is a significant number, being the age of Jesus at his crucifixion. The sisters were adamant that it was Joseph himself that came to their rescue. Thus, people have given the stairs the nickname St Joseph's Staircase. When local trade suppliers were contacted in an effort to track this craftsman down, none of them could help inquiries in any way at all. No bill of sales could be retrieved, and the lumber that was used was discovered to be of an unknown type. Whatever the wood that was used, it was not indigenous to the Santa Fe area. A modern analysis revealed the wood to be spruce, but a variety that nobody was familiar with. It was concluded that the closest possible locale for wood of this type would have been somewhere like Alaska. Why would a Victorian carpenter transport scores of lumber with nothing more than a mule, just on the one-off chance that it might be needed to build a staircase thousands of miles away? Sorting through the fact and fiction. As with all legends, there is some truth and some fiction to the story about the Loretto Chapel staircase. Mary J. Straw, cook and historian, researched the Santa Fe stairs for seven years. She compiled enough evidence about the mysterious carpenter that she was able to write a book called Loretto The Seven Sisters and Their Santa Fe Chapel in 1984. Cook says that she found an entry in the Nun's Day Book dated 1881, which indicated that they had paid a man named Roachus for wood. Cook also found an old newspaper article in the New Mexican that said that Mr Roachus had been shot in the chest in his Dog Canyon home, and that he had been a skilled woodworker who built the impressive Loretto Chapel staircase. According to Cook, François-Jean Rochas was a member of a French secret society of highly skilled craftsmen and artisans called the Compagnons, which had existed since the Middle Ages. Cook says that Rochas came to the US specifically to build the Santa Fe staircase and that he had the wood shipped from France. Mr. Rochas is buried at the Our Lady of the Light Catholic Cemetery. The Persisting Miracle The inspirational legend resulted in the creation of books and a 1998 movie called The Staircase, starring Barbara Hershey and William Peterson. While some of the legends may have been demystified with information about its supposed builder, many people who have seen The Stairs claim this makes it no less of a miracle. Where did the inspiration and knowledge come from to build a stunning staircase that still impresses even the best craftsmen around today? What cannot be debated is the marvelous work of art that was left behind. It can still be seen today, but the chapel is more of a corporate venue and museum these days. Significant events of a religious nature, such as weddings, can still be conducted there. Most visitors do actually come just to see the Loreto Chapel staircase that some have dubbed as Miraculous. Throughout history, cultures around the world have come up with lots of folk prognostications for predicting the sex assigned at birth. If the mother craves sweets, it's a girl. If she eats a lot of garlic, it's also a girl. Have a healthy glow, it's a boy. Pupils constantly dilated, boy. Develop acne, definitely a girl. As it turns out, this type of fortune-telling has been around for even longer than researchers thought. Bonnie Burton at CNET reports that a newly deciphered three-and-a-half-thousand-year-old Egyptian papyrus details a relatively elaborate way to find out a baby's sex. From the smithsonianmag.com website, an article by Jason Daly... Egyptian papyrus reveals this old wives' tale is very old indeed. The trick comes from the papyrus Carlsberg collection held at the University of Copenhagen. Though the trove of ancient documents were purchased and collected in the 1930s, many of the documents and scraps of documents have yet to be translated or published. But Lisbri at the Science Nordic reports that a group of four doctoral students are hard at work to change that. Translating ancient Egyptian texts on medicine, botany, astronomy, astrology and other science or pseudoscience topics. The documents have revealed some interesting details about the Egyptians. For instance, while researchers believe the civilization was not aware of the function of the kidneys, The papyri show that the Egyptians were, indeed, conscious of the organs and, in fact, were the first known people to write about them in a medical text. Texts on astrology also reveal the central place the science of consulting the stars played in Egyptian life. Like other cultures, rulers based major decisions, like whether to go to war, on an astrologer's interpretation of the heavens. The 3,500-year-old medical text that includes a process for determining pregnancy and the sex of a baby was also among the trove. To find out, the woman must first urinate into a bag of wheat and a bag of barley. The bag that sprouts first will reveal the pregnancy. Barley for boys, wheat for girls, though there is some controversy over the exact grains used and which grain signifies which sex. If neither bag sprouts, it means the woman is not pregnant. Egyptologists had heard about this test from another papyrus held at the Egyptian Museum of Berlin. But the latest version shows just how widespread the belief was. In a journal article in Clinical Chemistry, Glenn Braunstein describes the wheat and barley test as the first home pregnancy test and a concept that led to the piss prophets of the Middle Ages. That's a real title. Doctors who diagnose pregnancy and disease by examining urine. These doctors would look at the colour of the urine to determine pregnancy, or sometimes they would mix it with wine to see if there was a reaction. Another common test was soaking a ribbon in the woman's urine, then burning it. If the smell made the woman gag, she was with child, and probably needed to air out the house. In fact, the barley and wheat test itself was extremely long-lasting. Sophie Schott, the University of Copenhagen Egyptology graduate student who translated the text, says that the test appears in a book of German folklore as late as 1699, and according to one source, was still in practice in Asia Minor in the 1960s. Many of the ideas in the medical texts from ancient Egypt appear again in later Greek and Roman texts. From here they spread further to the medieval medical texts in the Middle East. And you can find traces all the way up to pre-modern medicine, she says. That really puts things into perspective as it shows that the Egyptian ideas have left traces thousands of years later. So is there any science behind the ancient test? According to the National Institutes of Health, In 1963, researchers decided to try out the method. In a study published in the journal Medical History, they found that wheat and barley watered with urine from men and non-pregnant women kept the grains from sprouting. But in about 70% of the cases, the urine from pregnant women did cause the grain to sprout. The test, however, did not accurately predict the sex of the children it's possible that increased estrogen levels in the urine could have helped stimulate the seeds. Which means the Egyptians may have been onto something in this particular case, though most ancient remedies are hogwash at best and endanger lives at worst. Still, understanding what the ancients believed helps us learn about their culture and how their thought influenced, and still influences ours making the translation of the thousands of documents in collections around the world a worthwhile effort. And from the flipboard.com website, these five spooky stories from the most haunted places in the world will seriously give you the chills. If you enjoy a real fright, these five spots offer a chance to get close to some of the more grisly ghost stories ever told. Kiseljevo, Serbia. This remote village is home to less than 800 inhabitants and one spooky vampire story. Yes, some vampire legends are actually true. In 1725 a resident named Peter Plogowitz passed away and in the next eight days nine deaths occurred. The nine who had died had said on their deathbeds that they had been throttled by Plogowitz's corpse. Priests and officials flocked to Kisilevo to investigate and roughly 40 days after Plogger has expired they exhumed his grave. Strangely his beard and nails still seemed to be growing and there were signs of new skin. When a stake was plunged into his body it was reported that fresh blood squirted from his ears and mouth. A horrible scream arose and his skin turned black. At that point the murders ceased. The Forbidden City, China You may be familiar with America's infamous ghost towns, but the beautiful, sprawling Forbidden City in Beijing, made up of 980 buildings on 180 acres, is one of China's best-known landmarks. From the 15th century through the early 20th century, the Chinese Emperor lived there but now it's rumoured to be haunted by the ghosts of his concubines. In 1421, Emperor Yongle ordered nearly 3,000 ladies-in-waiting associated with his harem, all of whom lived in the Forbidden City to be slaughtered because he thought that a beloved concubine had been poisoned. He spared some of his favourites in the harem, but on the day of his funeral, 16 courtesans were hung with nooses of white silk. Today in the Forbidden City, a lady with black hair has been seen running from a ghostly soldier. Sounds of screaming, weeping and sword fighting have been heard, and spectres of dead bodies, pools of blood and pieces of white silk have been glimpsed. The Forbidden City is the UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it is open to the public, although it closes before nightfall. Glamis Castle, Scotland. This castle was first built in the 14th century, and it's where the Queen Mother, the late mother to Queen Elizabeth II, grew up. It's also said to be populated by a bevy of ghosts, including the Grey Lady, or the Lady of Glamis, otherwise known as Lady Janet Douglas, accused of murdering her husband by poisoning him and of using witchcraft to take down King James V of Scotland, the Grey Lady was burnt at the stake in 1537 in Edinburgh. Her ghost is said to run up the stairs in the clock tower, leaving a trail of ash in her wake. A woman with no tongue has been seen roaming the park around the castle, and the ghost of an 18th-century boy servant, who had been terribly mistreated, is said to haunt a seat near the door of the Queen's bedroom. The most famous ghost is Earl Beardy, or the Earl of Crawford. This noble visited the castle in the 15th century, and one night he got drunk and demanded that someone play cards with him. If no one would, the Earl declared, he would play the devil himself. A mysterious hooded man dressed in black showed up at Glamis and offered to play. By the next morning the Earl had vanished and visitors to the castle have reported hearing swearing, loud voices, dice and clinking glasses. Cumae Archaeological Park, Italy If the most haunted places in America don't give you the chills, this ancient city will. Located on the southwestern coast of Italy and settled in the 8th century B.C., Cumae was the first Greek colony on the Italian mainland. It is best known for being the seat of the Cumaean Sibyl or Prophetess. It is the Ioneid Aeneas who went to see the Sibyl before he entered the underworld. A passage to hell is located nearby. Cumae has been the site of much bloodshed, in the 1st century, several brutal battles in the Gothic wars took place there, and during World War II, German soldiers used a part of it as a bunker and gun emplacement. Modern day visitors can traverse the dark womb-like tunnels and try their luck at consulting the Sibyl for guidance. And one from home, my home that is, Monte Cristo Homestead, Australia. Said to be Australia's most haunted house, this isolated residence was built on a hillside in New South Wales in 1884 by farmer Christopher Crawley. After he died in 1920, his wife Elizabeth became a Bible-immersed recluse, leaving the house only twice before she passed away. Her ghost is thought to walk the rooms and visitors report feeling an ice-cold chill when she shows up sometimes holding a silver cross. She has quite a bit of company, including these spirits. A maid who once plunged to her death from a balcony in the house. A stable boy who was burned to death by his master. And a mentally disabled man who was chained in the caretaker's cottage for 40 years. Naturally, the latter ghost makes his presence felt by clanking his chain. And if you like the Mysteries Abound podcast, remember I produce four of these each month. The first one, like this, is a free podcast available to everyone. And the other three are for patrons of the podcast. If you'd like to become a patron, just visit the patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex website. And by becoming a patron, you will get access to the other episodes each month. It costs as little as $1 per episode. You can make it more if you wish, but most people just do the $1. By becoming a patron, you give me a small income from the podcast, and this allows me time to leave my other work at the Botanic Gardens and do more podcasting. So if you'd like to get access to these podcasts, become a patron. It gives me the time to do the podcasts. Without your support, it wouldn't happen. So if you're not sure where to join up and become a patron, Easiest way, just visit the show notes, origins.info, and click on the link there right on the front page of the website. Anyway, on with the podcast. Every once in a while, objects of interest come across my desk that hold certain features that lift them just beyond our understanding. The enigmatic Newton Stone is one such artefact, not only because this ancient monolith is inscribed with a carved message written in a mysterious and currently unsolved language, but also because the writing can be interpreted using at least five ancient alphabets. From the ancientorigins.net website. A story by Ashley Cowie. Deciphering the Newton Stone's mysterious unknown script. Discovering the Newton Stone. Discovered in 1804 when George Hamilton Gordon, the Earl of Aberdeen was laying a road near pitmachi Farm in Aberdeenshire, the Scottish antiquarian Alexander Gordon later moved this enigmatic megalith to the Garden of Newton House, in the parish of Culsamond, about a mile north of Pitmatchee Farm. According to the Aberdeenshire Council of Newton House, the Newton stone is described as of blue nice and is around 2.03 metres high. It has six horizontal lines of characters inscribed at the top, which are thought to be a debased Roman script, the meaning of which is unknown. To the left of this, down the side of the stone, runs an Ogham inscription. It contains a personal name, Ethanon, and additional material that is either incomplete or not wholly legible. An incised kidney-bean shape was observed on the lower side of this stone, identified as a possible Pictish mirror symbol. The Unknown Script Ogham is an early medieval alphabet used to write the early Irish language between the 1st and 9th centuries. The short row of script on the Newton stone contains six lines of 48 characters and symbols, including a swastika and is situated across the top third of the stone. The language used to write this message has never been accurately identified, and it has become known in academic circles as the unknown script. Most specialists agree that the Long Ogham inscription is ancient. For example, Scottish historian William Forbes Skane dated the unknown inscription to the 9th century but several scholars also claim that the short row was added to the stone in the late 18th or early 19th century, suggesting the mysterious unknown script is a modern hoax or a badly executed forgery. Deciphering the Stone The Newton Stone's mysterious engravings were first published by John Pinkerton in his 1840 book, Inquiry into the History of Scotland but he personally made no attempt to decipher the unknown script. That first happened in 1822 when John Stuart, Professor of Greek at Marshall College, detailed a translation attempt made by Charles Valancy, who saw the characters as Latin, which he published in a paper addressed to the Edinburgh Society of Antiquaries entitled, Sculpture Pillars in the Northern Part of Scotland. In 1856, Stuart published Sculptured Stones of Scotland, detailing the work of Dr William Hodge Mill, an English churchman and Orientalist, the first principal of Bishop's College, Calcutta, and later Regis Professor of Hebrew at the University of Cambridge. Dr Mill proposed the unknown script was Phoenician, and being so highly respected in ancient language circles, his opinion was taken seriously and also greatly debated. Nowhere more so than at a meeting of the British Association at Cambridge in 1862. Although Dr Mill had died in 1853, his paper entitled On the Decipherment of the Phoenician Inscription on the Newton Stone discovered in Aberdeenshire was read out during this debate and his translation of the unknown script was... To Eshman, God of health by this monumental stone. May the wandering exile of me, thy servant, go up in never-ceasing memorial, even the record of Han Thanet Zenaniah, magistrate, who is saturated with sorrow. Several academics supported Mill's Phoenician theory, for example, both Dr. Nathan Davis, the explorer of Carthage, and Professor Ofrecht, also believed the script to be Phoenician. But in the sceptic camp, Mr. Thomas Wright proposed a simpler, debased Latin translation reading, Constantinus." Here lies Constantinus, the son of... Mr. Vaux of the British Museum agreed it was medieval Latin, and Wright's translation was also supported by the paleographer Constantine Simonides, but he substituted the Latin for Greek. Three years after this debacle, in 1865, the antiquarian Alexander Thompson read a paper to the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland addressing the five most popular decipherment theories. Phoenician, Gallic, Latin, Greek, Gnostic symbolism. Fringe theories abound. While this particular group of specialists argued over the nature of the Newton Stone's inscription, and which of the five proposed languages was used to make the cryptic message, another faction of more eccentric researchers kept new ideas flowing in. For example, Mr George Moore proposed a Hebrew Bactrian translation, while others likened it to Sinaitic, a form of old Canaanite. Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence Austin Waddell was a British explorer, professor of Tibetan, professor of chemistry and pathology, and an amateur archaeologist who had studied Sumerian and Sanskrit. In 1924, Waddell published his Out of India, ideas offering another radical decipherment, hito phoenician Waddell's books on the history of civilization were extremely popular with the public because they were so controversial and today he is regarded by some as the real-life precursor of the fictitious archaeological explorer, Indiana Jones. But his work earned him little academic respect as a serious Assyriologist. Although Waddell's Hito-Phoenician interpretation was built on thin ice, it was precisely what Dr Mill needed to hear because it supported his idea that the script was written in a form of Phoenician, In agreement with Waddell, Dr. Mill announced that the inscription was in the Phoenician character, which inspired Colonel Sykes to look at the script, and he began seeing affinities with the ancient alphabet of the Buddhists. A faction of academics in the 19th century was so convinced of the Buddhist origins of the Newton Stone script that they debated which of the many and diverse Brahmi script derivatives had been used to make it. However, one critic argued, I find a difficulty in reconciling to my mind the probability of Buddhist priests coming from the far east to the far west, to the cold and then almost uninhabited wastes of the north of Scotland and inscribing Hebrew words in the Ogham character on the Gadil of Erin." Sceptical Arguments In 1935, R.A. Stuart McAllister proposed that the unknown script was a modern forgery and said, there has never been a Newton Stone controversy. The literature of the subject, like that of The Number of the Beast, resembles a series of disconnected runaway knocks inflicted by street urchins on the door of a tempting corner house. In 1956, however, the archaeologist C.A. Gordon disputed McAllister's scepticism by claiming, After deliberate examination, I now feel sure that the inscription is genuine ancient work. On the whole, the evidence, both technical and petrological, seems to be so clearly in favour of the authenticity of the inscription that it can be confidently handed back to the consideration of scholars. The argument simmered down in the mid-20th century until 1984 when Anthony Jackson, a senior lecturer in Social Anthropology at Edinburgh University, addressed the unknown script problem from a new angle. Jackson, thinking right outside the box, called for the linguistic approaches to be abandoned for a numerical interpretation there is some advantage in abandoning a strictly linguistic approach to the Newton stone in favour of a numerical solution. Naturally, this method cannot produce a translation of the unknown script any more than it can with the ogams or symbol stones, but it does more than hint that the Picts were keenly aware of the property of numbers, especially if they had mystical significance. Conclusions Today, a wide range of interpretations attempt to translate the Newton Stone's mysterious message, including debased Latin, medieval Latin, Greek, Gallic, Gnostic symbolism, Hebrew Bactrian, Hittophenician, Sinaitic, and Old Irish. But not one of these has proven conclusive. Maybe you should give the Newton Stone an hour this weekend, as it wouldn't be the first time a casual observer turned a key in an age-old problem. And if you'd like to have a hand at deciphering this mysterious object, no matter where in the world you live, click on the link to this article on episode 169 of the Mysteries of Mound podcast, and there you will see a number of drawings and photographs of the stone and its inscription and some of the characters involved in the story. Worth a look if you're interested. Definitely is a strange-looking script. Hmm, can't make heads and tails of it myself. And before I tackle the last story in the podcast, just some information for you. The bandwidth for the podcast is provided by TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Paul Rex. The show notes are held at the Origins podcast website. Origins is spelt O-R-I-G-I-N-Z dot info. Origins dot info. And if you'd like a complete copy of the back catalogue of The Mysteries Abound and the Origins podcast, I've got this available via USB. So if you visit the show notes at origins.info and click on the link that says Back Catalogue, for the cost of $28, I will send you a 32 gig USB drive with the complete catalogue of both the podcasts on it. Anyway, that's enough advertising. Let's get on with the next story. From the Amerizen.org website... 10 Unbelievable Wartime Monster Sightings. And like I mentioned a minute ago, from the 10 Unbelievable Wartime Monster Sightings. And this is written by Charlotte West. It's often said that war is hell, but what's hell without at least the occasional demon? Perhaps that's why some of the most plausibility-straining monster sightings in history have been set against the backdrop of a world gone mad, with violence and death. Number 10. The U-28 Sea Crocodile. During World War One, the British steamer Iberian was cruising off the coast of Ireland when it was attacked by the German submarine U-28. The Iberian tried to flee, but the U-28 pursued, firing shells and torpedoes. After taking two direct hits, the Iberian tipped up and sank with her bow in the air. The sinking would be all but forgotten today if not for an article the U-28's Captain Baron von Forstner wrote for a German newspaper in 1933. In the Baron's account, he stood on the submarine's conning tower and watched the steamer sink. About 25 seconds after it disappeared beneath the surface, there was a large explosion, possibly caused by the ship's boiler detonating. The blast threw a mysterious sea creature out of the water. The animal was about 20 metres or 65 foot long and crocodile-like in shape, with pairs of strong front and hind legs adapted for swimming and a long head that tapered towards the nose. According to the Baron, the creature was visible for about 10 to 15 seconds at a distance of about 150 to 100 metres in the bright sunshine. The Belgian zoologist Bernard Huvelmans, who coined the term cryptozoology and produced an influential book on sea serpents, considered the U28 sighting one of the most reliable in history. The incident was especially interesting since the explosion flung the animal all the way out of the water, allowing the baron to see its entire body. Based on his description, Hoovelmans speculated that the creature might have been a surviving species of Thalattosuchia, a genus of giant sea crocodile from the time of the dinosaurs. Despite Hoovelmans' assessment, sceptics suggest that the Baron might have made the whole story up. According to his account, seven other crew members witnessed the creature. Unfortunately, six died during the war, presumably when the U-28 was sunk in 1917. The most common story is that another sinking ship exploded, hurling a burning truck straight onto the submarine. The only surviving witness was the sub's cook, Robert Maas, who never wrote about the incident, leaving the story to rely on Von Forstner's account alone. Additionally, the 61 survivors of the Iberian apparently didn't see the creature. In fairness, they might have been a little busy at the time. Number 9. The Morbuck Monster The German town of Wittlich is home to a strange legend, which might not be a legend at all if US soldiers stationed in the area are to be believed. According to the story a deserter from Napoleon's army found his way to the town where he attacked and murdered a local farmer and his wife. However, before the farmer's wife drew her last breath, she cast a curse on the feral soldier, turning him into a monstrous wolf. Mad with rage, the creature rampaged through the countryside until a mob of townsfolk hunted it down and killed it. The story is fairly well known. A local American football team even called themselves the Morbuck Monsters. But not particularly exceptional by the standards of werewolf lore. Most interesting are the experiences of an American servicemen stationed at the nearby Hahn Air Base during the Cold War. Apparently, a number of the American troops saw a mysterious wolf-like creature while patrolling the forested edges of the base. According to two anonymous accounts collected by the University of Pittsburgh, military policemen investigating a perimeter alarm stumbled upon a dog-like animal, which stood up on its hind legs and looked at them. The creature then took three long leaping steps and jumped over a high fence. The accounts differ on the exact height of the fence, but agree that it was taller than a man. The beast then disappeared into the forest. A sniffer dog was brought in, but it went berserk with fear, refusing to track the creature. University of Maine's anthropologist Matthias Bergard subsequently collected several other stories from US servicemen who said they had seen strange animals or odd movements deep in the woods. One airman said he had been stalked by a hidden howling beast while walking his dogs. Another witness rejected the theory that the Americans might have been startled by local wild hogs. I grew up on a farm in the USA, and this was no hog. Yet another serviceman offered Burgard an alternate explanation for at least some of the sightings. It was always fun to scare the new guys with stories of the werewolf, and then make them do a security check of the perimeter on foot. One of our canines was this big black Bouvier with bloodshot eyes. We would always send that dog's handler to meet the new guys. Number 8 The Hound of Mons. In 1919, a number of Oklahoman newspapers published a terrifying story from a Canadian World War I veteran named Captain F.J. Newhouse. According to Newhouse, allied soldiers in the trenches at Mons had found themselves hunted by a terrifying beast. It all started in 1914 when Captain Yeskies of the London Fusiliers took four soldiers out into no man's land on patrol. When they didn't return, their concerned comrades thought they might have been intercepted by the Germans. But days later, their dead bodies were found just as they had been dragged down with teeth marks at the throats. From that point, things only got worse. Terrible howls echoed across the landscape, and soldiers reported seeing strange movements beyond the barbed wire. Patrols into no man's land would be found horribly mauled, as if by some great beast. Then, just as suddenly as it had appeared, the creature seemed to disappear again. The mystery was only resolved when a German scientist named... Gottlieb Hochmuller was killed in a Berlin riot at the end of the war. Apparently, Hochmuller's papers revealed a dastardly plot to transfer a madman's brain into a giant Siberian wolfhound, which was subsequently released into no man's land. This was part of a series of experiments which Hochmuller hoped would end the war in Germany's favour. How even a very crazy dog was supposed to resolve a world war, remains unclear. Interestingly, Captain Newhouse seems to have been a real soldier, but otherwise the story falls apart quite quickly. For one thing, there is no record of a scientist named Gottlieb Hochmuller, and there was definitely no Captain Jeskies in the London Fusiliers. Jeskies is actually quite a rare name in England, although it's more common in Canada and America, suggesting that F.J. Newhouse probably made the whole thing up. The Battle of Mons is also well known for the legend of the Angel of Mons in which angelic beings, most commonly in the form of medieval bowmen, appear to protect British soldiers. The legend started with a short story by the horror writer Arthur Marchin, which appeared in the London Evening News in 1914. The story was written in the style of a newspaper report and wasn't adequately labelled as fiction, prompting many people to believe it was real. The story soon took on a life of its own, to the point that people refused to believe Marchin had made it up. As Marchin later wrote, The snowball of rumour that was then set rolling has been rolling ever since, growing bigger and bigger, till it's now swollen to a monstrous size. Number seven, the Little Bigfoot. The British zoologist John McKinnon achieved fame in the 1990s when he helped discover three new mammals in Vietnam's remote Vu Quang Nature Reserve. But in his 1974 book, In Search of the Red Ape, McKinnon suggested that there might be an even more extraordinary creature hiding in the rainforests of Southeast Asia. According to McKinnon, he was trekking through the Malaysian state of Sabah when I stopped dead, amazed at what I saw. I knelt down to examine the disturbing footprint in the earth. A print so like a man's, yet so definitely not a man's, that my skin crept and I felt a strong desire to head home. Their toes looked quite human, as did the shapely heel. But the sole was both too short and too broad to be that of a man and the big toe was on the opposite side to what seemed to be the arch of the foot. McKinnon's Malay boatman told him that the tracks belonged to the forest people or Batatut. But McKinnon apparently preferred not to investigate further. I was uneasy when I found them and I didn't want to follow them and find out what was at the end of the trail I knew that no animal we know could make those tracks. Without deliberately avoiding the area, I realise I never went back to that place in the following months of my studies. McKinnon's experience helped bring wider attention to the legend of the Batatut, the little Bigfoot that supposedly lurks in the jungle of Indochina and Borneo, which might help explain an unusual sighting reported in Craig. P.J. Jorgensen's book, Strange But True Stories of the Vietnam War. According to Jorgensen, six unnamed American soldiers were deep in the Vietnamese jungle when they spotted a strange, ape-like creature, about 150 centimetres tall, covered in red hair, walking upright through a clearing. The soldiers speculated that it could have been an orangutan, but then realised there were no orangutans in Vietnam. Sadly the creature quickly vanished and the 101st Airborne Division lost out on a potentially amazing new mascot. Number six, the Brosno Dragon. Located about 400 kilometers south of Moscow, Lake Brosno is a moderately sized but surprisingly deep body of water with a big reputation. According to legend, a fearsome horde of Tatar horsemen were on their way to sack the city of Novgorod when they decided to stop for a nice rest by the lake. Everyone was having a lovely time until a huge reptilian monster suddenly lunged out of the water and began attacking both men and horses. Taking the dragon attack as a bad sign, the Tatars decided to leave Novgorod alone and just go home instead. That's firmly in the realm of myth, but stories about a monster in Lake Brosno abound, essentially making Broznya Russia's equivalent of the Loch Ness monster. In 2002, a Russian UFO group organised an expedition to take sonar readings of the lake, reporting a huge jelly-like mass lying just above the lake bed. Since this was Russia, they immediately lobbed an explosive device at it, prompting it to start rising rapidly to the surface. Fortunately, when the team looked into the water, there was nothing resembling a monster, thus sparing them the terrible fate of the Tatars. Some Russian skeptics have suggested scientific scenarios supposedly solving the serpent sightings. For example, it's possible that hydrogen sulfide occasionally builds up at the bottom of the lake and rushes to the surface creating an eruption of bubbles that might be mistaken for an underwater creature. Alternatively, a volcanic fracture at the bottom of the lake might eject similar gases. Or maybe some Brosnia sightings are just wet elk swimming across the lake. However, even a very large elk surely couldn't have leapt from the water and swallowed a German plane whole, as Brosnia is rumoured to have done during World War II. Number 5. The Congo Snake Colonel Remy van Leer was a Belgian pilot who became well known for his heroic exploits during World War II. Among other feats, van Leer escaped from a German prisoner of war camp and made it safely to Britain, where he became an ace in the Royal Air Force. But his famous monster sighting came years later when he was returning from a mission in the Congo. According to Van Leer, he was flying over the jungle in a helicopter when he spotted a giant snake. Very dark green with his belly white, which he estimated at 15 metres in length. In Van Leer's account, the serpent reared up as though it wanted to attack the helicopter. Fortunately, the Belgian wasn't flying quite that close to the ground. He even managed to snap a picture of the beast, which is well known in cryptozoology circles. Unfortunately, the picture is blurry and doesn't provide anything to indicate the scale, so it can't be used as proof that the snake really was that enormous. Still, Van Lee had stuck to his guns, insisting that the monster was a true giant and could have easily eaten up a man, if it had wanted to. Number 4. A Kraken A squid-like Scandinavian sea monster, the Kraken is one of the best-known mythological creatures in the world, featuring in some of the most popular Hollywood releases of recent times. But the discovery of giant squid in the depths of the ocean has led some to speculate that there might be some truth in the occasional sighting of truly enormous cephalopods. One of the most dramatic Kraken encounters came during World War II, when a British trawler was moored off the Maldives. Crewman A.G. Starkey was standing on deck one evening when he spotted something in the water and shone his torch on it. As I gazed, fascinated, a circle of green light glowed in my area of illumination. This green, unwinking orb, I suddenly realised, was an eye. The surface of the water undulated with some strange disturbance. Gradually I realised that I was gazing almost point-blank at a huge squid. So far, that's not totally implausible. But Starkey then claimed he walked the length of the ship, finding the ship's head and tentacles at opposite ends. That would have made the creature 53 metres in length, more than three times as long as the largest giant squid ever recorded. Oddly, Starkey doesn't seem to have called anyone else to take a look at the terrifying monster lurking near the boat, leaving his story uncorroborated. Number three, The Mist. For all the elaborate dragon and werewolf sightings doubtless boring soldiers the world over, sometimes the creepiest supernatural sightings leave plenty to the imagination. Take the case of Robert L. Pollock, a crew member on a C-130 cargo aircraft during the Vietnam War. In an interview with the Paranormalist, Pollock related a disturbing experience while flying just off the coast of South Vietnam. I noticed movement at the rear of the boxcar-sized empty cargo compartment. I looked and was stunned to see a whirling grey cloudy mass forming at the rear right troop door. The mass was whirling clockwise. It completely filled in the entire rear of the aircraft within seconds. Naturally Pollock assumed that there was a technical problem, but none could be found. Before long, the whole crew had joined Pollock and they just continued to back away from the mass as it advanced towards the front of the aircraft. When Pollock placed his hand inside the mist, it simply vanished from sight. Then he and the plane's engineer decided to step inside the strange fog, finding that it completely blocked their vision, as if no light could penetrate it. But otherwise the mist had no smell or taste, and it didn't interfere with breathing. Pollock said he couldn't even feel it. Luckily the problem was solved when the mass began to go away the way it had appeared, only in reverse. When it got back to the place it had first started forming, it whirled counterclockwise and then just disappeared into nothing. Sensibly, Pollock and the other crew members decided to pretend the incident had never happened and didn't discuss it any further. Number 2. Russia's Bigfoot. Not content with their own Loch Ness, the Russians also have their own Bigfoot-like creature, known as the Almus. These short, ape-like men supposedly inhabit Central Asia's rugged Palmer Mountains. One of the most famous Almus sightings came in 1925 when General Mikhail Topilsky was hunting pockets of anti-Soviet resistance holding out in the area. While interrogating a captured gorilla, Topilsky was told that the rebels had supposedly been attacked by strange creatures in a nearby cave. Intrigued, Topilski decided to investigate and soon found an unusual dead body. Anthropologist Myra Shackley described it in her book Still Living. The body belonged to a male creature, 165 to 170 centimetres tall, elderly or even old, judging by the greyish colour of the hair in several places. The chest was covered with brownish hair and the belly with greyish hair. In general, the hair was very thick, without any underfur. There was least hair on the buttocks, from which fact our doctor deduced that the creature sat like a human being. There was most hair on the hips. The knees were completely bare of hair and had callous growths on them. The whole foot, including the sole, was quite hairless and was covered by hard brown skin. The hair got thinner near the hand, and the palms had none at all but only callous skin. The colour of the face was dark, and the creature had neither beard nor moustache. Unfortunately, Topilski apparently didn't have a camera and decided not to skin the corpse as he had initially planned. Instead, he ordered his men to bury it, casually destroying the only evidence that his story wasn't completely made up. But if the Russian Bigfoot does exist... At least we can say he doesn't have a moustache. And number one, Maskelyne's Scarecrow Monster. With all the media reports of supposed wartime monster sightings, it's no surprise that some slightly over-enthusiastic officers have tried to make their own happen. The most famous case probably occurred in the Philippines during the 1950s. Colonel Edward Lansdale was an American Air Force officer and intelligence operative who masterminded various PSYOPs, campaigns against the communist Huck insurgents in the country. At one point, that apparently involved faking a vampire attack. According to Lansdale's memoirs, a Huck squadron was dug in on a hill and local troops had been unable to dislodge them. So Lansdale decided to play on local superstitions involving a shape-shifting vampire known as an Aswang. The Paiswa squad set up an ambush along a trail used by the Hucks. When a Huck patrol came along the trail, the ambushers silently snatched the last man of the patrol. They punctured his neck with two holes, vampire fashion, held the body up by the heels, drained it of blood and put the corpse back on the trail. The Hucks were gone by morning. Of course, we only have Lansdale's word for any of this, so draw your own conclusions. An even more unlikely fake monster story comes from World War II, when the British recruited a stage magician named Jasper Maskeline to bamboozle the Germans with elaborate camouflage and deceptions. That much is true. But Maskelyne still felt the need to exaggerate his exploits in his memoirs, which are generally not considered reliable. During the invasion of Sicily, Maskelyne claimed to have created a device which was little more than a gigantic scarecrow, about 12 feet high, and able to stagger forward under its own power and emit frightful flashes and bangs. This thing scared several italian Sicilian villages, appearing in the dawn, thumping its deafening way down their streets with great electric blue sparks jumping from it. And the inhabitants, who were mostly illiterate peasants, simply took to their heels to the next village, swearing that the devil was marching ahead of the invading British. In both cases, cunning Western intelligence officers pulled off amazing scams. Although, whether they fooled illiterate locals, or the literate book-buying public, remains up for debate. Well, good friends, that concludes episode 169 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And remember, if you'd like to support the Mysteries Abound podcast and get access to more shows, consider becoming a patron. That's patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex. Your help and support would be greatly appreciated and it would help to keep the podcast going and viable. Anyway, until next time, everyone, this is Paul saying bye for now. Keep well, keep safe, and thank you for listening. Bye for now, everyone.